blockheads. Stop reading the Windows 2000 source code and listen up. It's time for another stellar edition of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin. This is Karen Cavallero here to announce show number 50, .NET Success Stories, Episode 2, with guests Chris Kinsman and Jesse Ezel. Recorded January 20th, 2004, and published Monday, February 16th, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who claims the leaked Windows source code is really a clever fake, perpetrated by Linux zealots, Carl Franklin. Gotta get enough points to Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, everybody. I am Carl Franklin, as you know, and welcome to my show. This is .NET Rocks, episode number 50, as Karen already said. Uh, .NET success stories. This is the second in a series of success story shows that we're doing on an ongoing basis. Uh, the guests today are Chris Kinsman and Jesse Ezel in that order. But before we talk to them, uh, I thought I'd like to just mention... The, what we're doing here at .NET Rocks, uh, for those who don't know, we're switching over to a live format. That means the show is broadcast live, and it's streamed with uh, Microsoft Windows Media Services on a Windows 2003 server uh, box, and we're basically streaming it live. So if you want to catch that, come to our webpage, www.franklins.net slash .NET Rocks, sometime before Friday, at noon, and it's going to be from noon Eastern to 2 p.m. Eastern, and we're going to start in earnest uh, this Friday, February 20th. So don't miss that. Uh, before I uh, introduce my first guest, let me uh, read an email here that we got from one Kevin Bartness. Bartness? Bartness? Sorry, Kevin, I don't have the right emphasis, but uh, that's your name. Carl. I like your show for many reasons, but the main reason is that it gives me a measurement of my skills as a developer. I am the only developer at my company and have been mostly self-taught. I often find myself wondering if I'm doing things that other developers are doing or if I understand how all the new technology is to be used. Your show not only gives me the basis for measuring my abilities, but also how the new technology is used, not to mention that the show is very entertaining. Well, I hope to be able to call in live someday and take your class. Keep up the great work. Kevin Bartness. Kevin, thank you very much. And uh, just for being a nice guy and sending us a mail, we're going to send you a copy of Microsoft Money 2003 Deluxe, which has had a number one rating. So compliments to Microsoft in the box and everything. All right, well, let's get on with the show. Uh, my first guest is on the line, Chris Kinsman from Virgin Software. Uh, if you've been to VBits or if you've been to conferences or read magazines, you probably have seen Chris's name. He's also uh, been a frequent uh, speaker at Inetta-based user groups. And, um, well, without any further ado, welcome, Chris. Hey, good to hear from you, Carl. Uh, Virgin Software, that's your, that's your deal? 
Yeah, that's my thing that I've been doing now for about three years or so. Uh, started it when I left DevX, uh, got out of there because I really felt like I wanted to be doing .NET development pretty much full-time, and that wasn't where they were going at the time, and figured it was time to strike out on my own. And, and did so, gosh, about probably 10 months before .NET 1.0 shipped. And we were just talking before uh, the show that uh, we met each other about, what, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, a long time ago on CompuServe when you were doing stuff with Crescent and doing oh, all man. those great sockets with VB books back then. <laughs> yeah, I was doing serial communications back then. but Oh, uh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. When I first saw, you know, sockets and the Internet, you know, I threw my modems out the window. Some definite correlation there. Absolutely. So you've, uh, you're no stranger to the Internet yourself. In fact, you got into it rather early, I remember. Yeah, yeah I got involved with you know, IIS very early on when it first shipped and was using IDC files and oh, yeah. all the great little things like the uh, Olay2ISAPI com shim that we had oh. to try and fire up com objects in VB and VB CGI programming using you know, I.O. redirection. Good, For- t- good times. Yeah, some for something for some reason I seem to remember the Olay to Isapi or Isapi Olay Isapi DLO or whatever it was sort of had some problems. I can remember like there was a bad version and then there was a new version and because it was on Carl and Gary's VB homepage and I remember having a lot of uh, getting a lot of email about that one. Yeah, I, one of the VB devs actually uh, at the time it was a guy named David Stutz who later went on to lead the Rotor project in the .NET world. Yeah. Um, was the author of that particular uh, little extension, basically a way to try and allow the VB developer to do ISAPI-style programming in VB. Uh, yeah. And the first edition, yeah, definitely had some issues. And I, think I, it was, I don't think it was... Back and forth. I don't think it was a code issue, his code, as much as it was like a, a com registration issue or something. You yeah. Know? Those were rampant back then. Yeah, all that nightmarish time before the managed code. Well, now, um, you, you did, you mentioned you left DevX. DevX.com, of course, was, uh, started by Fawcett Technical Publications as their website for, as their portal website for developers. Exactly. They kind of started out with a bunch of scattered websites. Um, in fact, I think when I went to work for them, uh, quite a few years ago, it must be about seven years ago now, um, they had around 35 or so websites. And that was one of my first efforts there was to kind of, bring them all onto a common platform and bring them under a common a common naming scheme, as it were, while trying to maintain their identities. Yeah. They were really catering to pretty diverse communities. They were trying to attract the VB developer at the same time as attracting the Java developer, and yeah. kind of like oil and water in that particular case. Right. Yeah, so, and you naturally, you know, water down, as to continue the metaphor, you water <laughs> down the effectiveness of uh, marketing to each of those platforms because they're associated with, with the enemy, you know? Right. Um, but it must have been interesting at that time, and, and, you know, this is a show about success stories, so, uh, in .NET, so I don't want to take up too much time, but it is an interesting story that, you know, you were basically trying to build the Taj Mahal with, you know, uh, with mud and grass, basically. Yeah, this this was back in the ASP 3.0 days. In fact, we started when I got there running on NT4. And if anybody remembers IIS4, while it was a great platform, uh, it's nowhere where, you know, nowhere near where IIS6 is today. Uh, we definitely had a few issues with uh, IIS going out to lunch and dealing with things like uh, apartment, you know, threading and VB being used right. as com components and ASP and 
just a lot of headaches and uh, figured out ways to work around those and ended up running a fairly successful site in the end. Yep. And I bet you didn't sleep much back then. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely remember at least a couple of uh, Thanksgivings and Christmases where I was not far from a computer. <laughs> Well, uh, you mentioned that the performance has, and, and the, the feature set and the stability of Internet Information Server has definitely improved over the years. Uh, we were talking uh, at the at the Peer Summit, actually, about a project that you did for a, a insurance software company where I can't, I can see if I can remember the numbers right, but you're replacing a system that had 600 servers with six servers? Yeah, that's currently the plan, actually, Carl. Um, the system that's in place today, um, or actually is being phased out today, uh, was a system that was originally built as a two-tier system with a um, VB slash C++ front end talking to SQL Server on the back end, your classic client server app. It's been around for quite a few years. In fact, that was the third iteration of this app. The app originally started out on a VAX VMS system years ago. And um, the problem that they had is as we moved into this Internet age, their clients wanted to go ahead and use this app in more of an Internet-type basis. And one of the other issues that they ran into is that for a small insurance agency, this is meant for independent insurance agencies, they couldn't necessarily justify going out and buying their own SQL server and their own server and running it in-house. And even if they could justify justify it, they really had no one to maintain it. Huh. and make sure it was being backed up, et cetera, et cetera. So a few years ago, this company got the idea of, you know, let's come up with an ASP offering from the standpoint of an application service provider offering. Right. And allow the end user to pay us a monthly fee. We maintain the SQL server. We worry about the backups, et cetera. So their solution to doing that was to do this all via Citrix. Wow. And... uh Consequently, uh, it was immensely successful. A lot of their agents bought into this and liked the idea of not having to maintain essentially their own you know, database server in-house. And they ended up with a scenario where ultimately they ended up with about 600 Citrix servers. Good Lord. In a data center down in College Station, Texas. Does uh, each one of those... I haven't used uh, Citrix in a project like that. Does each one of those servers uh, support only one user at a time? It doesn't support one user. It's actually very similar to um, uh, Windows Terminal Services. Okay. So it does support multiple users connected to, each, to the server at a time, but it's yep. essentially like multiple users using remote desktop into that one server. Okay. So they're all sharing the memory, and they're all sharing the processor. Oh, so there's definitely right. some limit to the number of users that you can actually get dialed into each server. Right. Um, and that's why there's the 600 and something or other servers. Okay. If I remember right, and I could be totally off, it's in the tens of thousands of users that they support overall. So now the plan is to go to six servers. Are those six servers going to be doing the same thing, like serving up a desktop, or are they going to be, is it going to be an auto-deployed app? No, What's the so actually we, um, we looked at, I was brought in way early kind of during the architecture phase of this project, and they kind of knew they wanted to go to .NET. They had a code base that had been being patched and kind of hacked on through about five or six versions. Um, it was really a mishmash of various pieces of code. In fact, I joked with them, Carl, and you'd probably appreciate this, that depending on which dialogue they brought up in the application, mm. I could pretty much tell them what year that dialogue was created. Yeah. 
Because yeah. they'd bring up one dialogue, and it would have three levels of 3D going into the dialogue, and yeah. four levels of 3D coming out of the dialogue, and I'd say, ah, that's when the Control 3D in VV4 shipped. The invasion of Control 3D DLL. Exactly. And then <laughs> they'd show me another dialogue, and I'd see this other dialogue, and the other dialogue was clearly one that they'd done with Borland Resource Workshop. Because yeah. it had the little white dots and the green check marks and the big red X's. The big the red X of Borland. Exactly. Yeah. And so, really kind of a patchwork. And they decided, it's really time for us to start over. We really want to bet, you know, place our bet, essentially, on .NET. We think that's where things are going, which I thought was actually pretty brave of them, considering, because when I was coming in, again, this was about 10 months before .NET 1.0 shipped. Wow. So, it was a pretty big bet that they were taking. And their initial thought was that they wanted it to be a purely web-based application. Uh And that's why I was brought in. And I started doing prototyping and trying to figure out, you know, can we make it a purely web-based application? And the more we looked at it, um, it was an application that really wasn't that suited to ASP.NET, actually. Hmm. Because if you think about what you have to do in an insurance-type application, they're, for example, filling out the actual application data for an insurance form. And in the case of depending on the type of business that they're writing this insurance for, that could be gathering four to 5,000 pieces of information. Jeez. Um, not exactly your typical app that you want to do in an ASP.NET no. style where you're constantly doing postbacks to do validation and things along those lines. Lots of view state data. So we really had a pretty strong mandate, however, that they didn't want to go down the route where there was client software installed because they didn't want to worry about the headache of doing the updates and everything else. Uh-huh. So we ended up coming up with this approach where it's a it's a blended application that actually blends ASP.NET and auto-deployment or smart client or whatever you want to call it, WinForms, mm-hmm. and ties those together. Good for um, you. The end user's entrance into the application is by logging into a website. Um, they log into that website. There's a lot of stuff they do in a purely web-based approach, and they don't have to have any. Don't even have to have the .NET framework on their client to do that. Right. But in the point in time that we're going to start doing what I would term some heavy-duty data entry and things along those lines, um, they actually would, for example, say, "I want to uh, do a claim, or I want to write a new insurance policy for someone's vehicle, or something along those lines." We actually, at that point, then activate some smart client pieces that are on on the workstation, and those then communicate back with the back end via web services and get the data pulled down that they need to do. It actually does all the validation and all the data entry client side based on some workflow engines that we've created, and then when it's saved, it's obviously saved back onto the server via the web service. So those pieces that exist on the client, are those pre-installed like Windows services, for example, or... Or applications that Yeah, exist. so we kind of went back and forth with that for quite a while. Um, we definitely had some issues be- surrounding the code access security pieces right. in terms of what we were allowed to do and what we were able to interact with. And so we kind of had to balance kind of the two pieces of this in that we really didn't want to force the client to install a lot, but we knew at the very least we were probably going to have to have them install a policy that would right. give us potentially elevated access to do things like for example, export data to Excel or write cache files to the local disk and things along those lines. Hmm. And so given that we knew that we were going to have to install a policy, we actually did have them install a small executable on their system. And that executable itself is actually updated as they log into the web page. 
Huh. So we actually do that via a Windows Forms control hosted in the web page to actually update the initial executable that's on the system. So they are, that executable hasn't started yet. So they already have the client, the framework on their system. Yeah, they've already got the .NET framework, and they've even installed, essentially done a very small install that we give them. It's about 270K that puts on um, our security policies into the, uh, into the security policy manager for um, .NET, and then also installs just a few little files there that when the web page starts up, it communicates to those using remoting from okay. Windows Forms control hosted in IE nice. down into this executable that's actually living on the local system. That's neat. Um, how many, let me just back up a little bit, how many users would you say this support, I mean, I, I know you had 600 servers, but how many users are we talking about? Uh, the end goal of this, if I remember right, is to have along the lines of probably 30,000 end users at some point using the system. Wow. Um, when we're built out to that point, we probably will have more than six servers. Um, six servers was our initial deployment. How many now? Um, today we have on the order of, if I remember right, five to 6,000 users up on the system. And wow. we're adding literally more each month because we're converting the older users that were using the old system onto this new system. So so the security policy little program that, that you install, um, obviously you agree with me that uh, you should think of the .NET framework not as a something that you bundle into your setup program like we did with VB6, but, but a system upgrade more along the lines of a service pack. Exactly. And in fact, I mean, that's one of the things that we tell them up front. Um, we have some prereqs for this app. Yep. For example, we require IE6. We yep. require that they're running in Windows 2000, or Windows XP, yep. or I think we support, I can't remember off the top of my head, Windows 98. Um, but just like we require IE6, we also require that they have the .NET framework installed before we even start up. That's great. And that's, so, that's the way it should be, I think. Uh, you know, old habits die hard, and, and I see people trying to bundle in you know, the installation of the framework with their software setup, and that's just not the way it's done. Right. Of course, we haven't had any pushback really at all so far. And in fact, some of the folks that I thought we'd get some serious pushback from, this actually gets sold into some large banks and things like that. Hmm. Um, they had no issues at all with it. In fact, they were cool because they actually used uh, their own inter internal software distribution systems, i.e. like SMS and things like that, to push the framework out to all the desktops, as well as our little install that we required to be installed to upgrade the security policies on the machine. Yeah. And from their user standpoint, all their users had to know is they had to click a link in an email that said, you know, this is how you go to the app. Now, that that uh, gives brings up the security issue. Now, you said this, this I'm, I'm just curious about this initial client because, you know, that seems to be where the issues come up, you know, with security. How do you get that to them? Um, and also, do they have to be logged in as an administrator in order to install that security policy? And how do you issue, how do you deal with that issue? Right. And yeah, those are two very good questions. In fact, our application itself does not require them to be logged in as an admin. But as it turns out, um, a couple of things that our application does install, specifically Crystal Reports, which you're familiar with that at all, it's not exactly managed. Nope. And consequently, it has all the COM registration issues and things like that. And to do COM registration, you do have to be a local admin. Um, so that's actually being handled by the folks that are doing the push-out installs in most cases via SMS. There's a way to indicate that that needs to run in a local admin context. In mm. the cases where we just have, you know, onesie twosies users and small agencies, we just indicate to them that they need to be logged in as an admin on the box before running our installer. 
Okay. In fact, we've put up a warning if they try and run our installer when they're not in an administrative contact. And SMS can get around that issue by executing a setup program as an administrator? Yeah, very similar to how you can do a run as. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sure. You can, you can indicate that you want a program to run as a particular context. Yeah, they that's can do a, a similar type of thing, and they can indicate that, they, for example, they want to run it as a particular domain account that has admin rights on that box. Now, do you see that as a security issue, like a security hole? I just mean the fact that you have these tools like SMS and run as that, uh, you know, that, that if somebody gets a hold of those, that they can install things that require admin privileges. Right. And, you know, I, I don't think it's that much of a security hole because they still require you to have the account that you're going to do that as. That's true. So, And you have to not only have the account, you have to have the password. Right. So if you have the account and password, you could obviously get to the local box potentially unless there's physical security preventing you. From that standpoint, I'm not too worried about it. We were concerned about it from the standpoint of our code. Right. Because we are definitely installing some bits on the box, and we want to make sure that um, those aren't used as potential attack vectors. Did you use any obfuscation tools? We aren't using any obfuscation today, um, but we are being very careful. The little the little executable that we install, it essentially yeah. starts up, and it then it gets a remoting server for all intents and purposes that we call upon services that it exposes. Yeah. And we've been very careful, for example, to make sure that um, we don't open any ports that are available outside the machine. Right. Okay. You know, that essentially, the ports that we open are only available on the loopback, and that even with that, we also do some things to make sure that uh, the folks that are actually calling into our remoting objects are actually our applications so instead you, of someone else. So you do some auth- authentication exactly. in the remoting as well. Yeah, exactly. that's one thing that uh, is missing, really, from the remoting infrastructure. I don't know how well, much... Well, I, I don't think... I think that's also why those guys argue that remoting is really used for in-process communication than cross-process. Yeah. I kind of disagree. I think... I, 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 did, I don't think that remoting is one of those things It's a replacement for web services, which a lot of folks will tell you, yes. you know, it's more performant, that's what you should be using. But at the same time, I think remoting definitely has a place on the local machine for cross-process communication. Sure. Well, it is the out-of-process model. I mean, there isn't any way to, uh, else to do it. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Besides... Unless you're going to go all the way down to the sockets level, in right. which you're going to actually, you know, not have the abstraction that remoting offers and still right. have all the same problem. Exactly. So I, I think it does solve a particular problem, um, and it works well for us, but I think folks are using it for a lot more than it really should be used for. I was just talking about sockets with uh, Chris Sells and Rory Blythe in the last show. And, um, you know, the issue is that it, it's like raw. It's raw data with no protocol. You don't even know, like, when when you've got all the data that you that was sent and how to interpret the data that was sent. You have to have some sort of protocol on the top. But, you know, it does does come in handy when you have platforms such as, you know, Pocket PC that don't support remoting. Um, then you have to go down there. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you're, if you're talking to process A from process B on the same machine – Remoting seems like a really obvious solution there. Yeah, and it's, it seems to be relatively lightweight um, and works well for that scenario, and it's worked well for us so far. So, in fact, it's funny you mentioned the sockets thing on uh, on Pocket PC. We actually did an app recently, which was for a casino for uh, filling slot jackpots that was actually done on a Pocket PC device in this case. Wow. And um, the Pocket PC device communicated wirelessly back to a server 
actually using web service calls to communicate with a player management system. Hey, before you before you get into that, and I want to talk to you about that, but let me just wrap up this last application that you did sure. for the insurance software company. How long did it take, and and how many people were involved? And uh, you know, obviously, it's a huge project. How many lines of code was it before? And give me some sense of the the task at hand, and and how long it took, and all that. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure the number of K locks before. If I were to hazard a guess, we're probably talking about probably four million to four and a half million lines of code in the Don't. product we were replacing. Don't. Um you know, it's a product that's been through five versions or so, so it's a relatively large product. Um, the new product, again, I'm not real clear on lines of code. It's definitely fewer than that. Um, one measure that I do have is that we have currently about 289 assemblies that make up the product, Ooh. which just building it on a nightly basis is an entertaining process. We've <laughs> actually had to make a lot of our own build tools to, to make all that work. Yeah. Um, but it's fairly sizable. Um, number of developers, uh, it was probably about, I'm going to say, 12 developers, and there were probably about six analysts. Okay. And the first version took approximately a year to get out. Um, the That's first not version bad. is not covering 100% of the features of the app that it's replacing. The second version is doing that, which we're actually currently in progress and working on now. And that second version took about a year also to get out and, uh, with a few more programmers. I think we're up to around 16 or 17 now. Wow. That's still pretty impressive considering the scope of the project. Oh, yes. Very large project. So speaking of, uh, you were telling me about the slot machine application. Yeah, we've actually done a couple there. The the one I was thinking of when you started talking about the sockets, we did one on Pocket PC, which spoke uh, was a compact framework app. It spoke to a backend via web services. But the reason we ended up getting into sockets is we needed to be able to communicate with a printer. Hmm. on the Pocket PC device. Ooh. And there's no printer drivers on the Pocket PC. Right, of and course, In fact, yeah. the printer we wanted is, you know those little printers they have at Hertz when you run a car? <laughs> you know, they got the little printer on their belt? Yeah. We wanted exactly that. And so we went looking around, and we finally found a vendor, Zebra, that makes actually a printer, if you can believe it, that's Wi-Fi enabled. Ooh. So it's an 802.11b-based printer, which we had to, you know, go ahead and get it on the network, etc. But then the only way we could talk to it was via sockets because there's no printer driver support and compact framework. Oh, man, that's smoking. But it was still very cool. You know, it enables us to, enabled us to kick out the little receipts that we needed to kick out so folks could sign them and say, yeah, I got my jackpot and stuff like that. So that was a very cool application that we used of sockets on uh, Pocket PC. So you talked directly to the printer through TCPW, like you were sending it yep. escape codes and stuff? Yep. Well, it's Ooh. a pretty simple printer. It's not a graphical printer like we think of as a laser printer. I mean, okay. think of a receipt printer type of printer, essentially. So you're sending in ASCII characters, basically? Yeah, with escape codes with to do things like centering codes. and bolding and you know, different oh, cool. font sizes and things like that. Oh, that pretty sounds much fun. like talking to an old dot matrix years ago. <laughs> yeah. Very similar. Yeah. So that was one fun one we did there. And we actually did another app Whoa. for the same company, which was on a custom piece of hardware that they had actually built their own CE-based machine for doing player management on a slot machine. Mm. We then wrote the UI entirely in Compact Framework. Mm. And it was pretty cool because actually we did this about the middle of last year. And uh, we actually came up with a language that looks scarily like XAML, as it turns out. Oh, man. To drive the UI of this application. It was all XML-based to describe not only the layout of the UI and where the graphics showed up, but what actions should actually happen when pieces of UI are interacted with and the whole nine yards. Wow. So 
they showed that at the GES gaming exhibition this year in Las Vegas. And so got this great the, reactions. To so it. this application was this the slot machine itself, like the what the user interacted with, or was it something that so you ran if on you've the ever slot? You've been machine? to Vegas and you see a slot. They've all got those little uh, little card slots on the top where you stick in your player card to get points. Okay. And they've you know got a little LCD that says "Welcome, Carl. You have 500 points." Right. <laughs> So this is more, more often than that. not. They say, uh, "Welcome, Carl. It's been a pleasure sucking your money dry." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is a replacement for that. That that little, you know, maybe one or two line uh, alpha display is being replaced with a 640 by 200, or actually 640 by 240 touchscreen, mm. full color that can play. We are actually playing video from within Compact Framework onto it. Neat. I'm um, doing sound. Uh, and then actually generating our own UI to interact with the user. And that was then talking with a back-end system via some shared memory protocols that we'd set up. So the, it was basically a way that you could interact act with their account, basically, and distribute them points. And Yep. Yeah. And in fact, the communication, you're a serial guy, you'd love this, was all done over uh, RS-485 multi-drop <laughs> to the back-end. <laughs> My serial <laughs> days are over. I hope well, I never have to write that. They aren't that in code. casinos. I'll tell you what. They've got a ton of that two-pair wire in there, essentially, yeah. uh, that that's the lifeblood of their communications for the older casinos today. Um, new ones, as they're being put in, they're putting in Ethernet and things like that, but uh, not nearly as common as the old RS-485 stuff. Chris, one of the coolest things that uh, I remember you talking about at the Peer Summit was how you hooked into the build process uh, in VisualStudio.net in the events uh, the build events in C sharp and went off and, and cr- created an elaborate scheme to, to, uh, build your application. We actually don't hook into the build events. In fact, we do all of the build ourselves. Um, when we first started this and we were getting this number of projects, it was ridiculous to think that we could build this app nightly inside of vs.net. Yeah. That was just not going to happen. And so at the time, also, NANT was fairly nascent. It really wasn't... NANT. NANT is a build system, uh, a .NET version of something called ANT that really came out of the Java community. Okay. Which is a command line build tool, which we actually use now for some of our smaller projects. I'm uh, thinking of version... good in the intervening time. I'm thinking of version control. There was something that you said you were hooking... Maybe it was a different project. Something you said you were hooking these uh, events and you were writing assemblies into a structure and copying them up to a server, doing like check-in, check-out stuff. Uh, uh, well, maybe what... Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly what that was relating to. I can't to. remember. We do some really kind of bizarre things in the insurance app for... We have a couple of uh, forms that need to use some COM objects, and but we want to do smart deploy, and clearly COM objects aren't easy to do smart deploy. Yeah. So we've got some clever packaging schemes where we take the COM objects and package them up as resources inside of a .NET assembly, <laughs> and then that .NET assembly gets pulled down to the client along with the form that references it, and then we actually unpack them on the fly oh, and man. register them on the system living so that they're then available for use on the form. That's living dangerously, huh? It's, you know, <laughs> it's something we had to do. We definitely don't do it all over the place, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a pain. I mean, that's probably been our biggest pain point on this project is when we need to go out and find something, um, many of the things that we need, we just can't find in a purely managed state. What's one of the coolest problems, uh, and I mean this in the way that it was solved, what was one of the, 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 
biggest challenges that you had the coolest solution for in this project? Just pick one. Oh, interesting. So um, probably the the coolest one is we started down the road just doing pure um, smart client deployment yeah. where .NET handles all the downloading of all the assemblies and figuring out all the dependencies and things like that. And we quickly found that in many cases that kind of fell down. Um, it didn't quite do what we wanted. Right. It was so very close, but either you know it wasn't as performant or any number of things because of some of the probing it was doing to find out if it had to update assemblies. So we actually put a system in place that we replaced the .NET loader where we actually have a XML file that we term a manifest that we bring down from the web server where our assemblies live. Hmm. They give us all the remote versions that are available up on the web server. Oh, cool. And whenever you ask me to load a form, I actually trace the full route of all the dependencies that that form has from top to bottom, looking at what's on the local disk versus what's on the server. And then actually do a smart process of actually downloading just the ones that are required or that have, just the ones that have changed. Oh, that's neat. And then based on that, then instantiate the form locally. <laughs> and then the finer, final kicker to that is once we had that in place, we also had all the pieces in place. We now actually do proactive background downloads using bits. Right. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> so we take that same manifest and on app startup, they're ordered in the order of least dependent Right. Most dependent. Right. So we actually start essentially loading the least nodes of the dependency chain first, hmm. all the way up to the most dependent, hmm. um, and go ahead and do that just in order and just chunk through them in bits, which means that, you know, if the user stays logged into our app, you know, for a couple hours, uh, by the time, uh, you know, they go around to launch their next piece of the application, more likely than not, all of the assemblies that make up that piece are already on their system. Well, it sounds like it sounds like you're doing a, a lot of what they're addressing in ClickOnce. Somewhat. Um, ClickOnce has a lot of the same concepts because they do have the idea of kind of an application manifest that right. indicates what makes up the application and things like that. The yeah. offline mode kind of thing. Yeah. Very cool. I sure wish Click Once would have been here in one zero. <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of I, headaches. I know, pretty cool technology. Very cool. We just uh, had a show with Brian Noise, as you know, and uh, he sort of gave us the the lowdown on Click Once. I can't wait. It's it's yeah, it's very cool stuff. It actually came out of something I don't know if you saw very early on. There was something called the App Updater, right? The application that block. Cool put up there. He's one of the PMs on the .NET team, and that kind of became Click Once after a few morphings here and there. It's great. Uh, the innovation that's coming out of uh, Redmond is just awesome. They have a lot of smart guys there. They do. There's no question about that. Well, and, and you know, you're local, so, uh, you know, you're fit, you fit right in up there. Yeah, I've avoided that great sucking so far. Yeah, I bet they rec- try to recruit you every day, huh? Uh, I've been in for a few, but, you know, the right <laughs> position just definitely hasn't come up. Yeah. So, try. I actually find, I think I'd probably... Yeah, I really don't know. I worked there years and years ago, like 10 years ago. Yeah. And my big worry is, you know, I have a lot of freedom in picking the projects that I want to work on right now. I get to work on a lot of fun things. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm worried that, well, yes, I'd get to work on some big things that a lot of people would see. Um, I don't know that I'd have as much fun. Yeah, you probably would I like what I'm doing now. So, so far, I've avoided that uh, big noise out of Redmond that... Not as many folks have. I mean, you mentioned Chris Sells. He got sucked up from Portland there. Right, right. 
Yeah, and Don, Chris and Don, both recently. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, relatively recently. Well, it seems like every time I turn around, there's somebody you know else that I know that's gotten pulled in there. It's quite, <laughs> the, a, it's quite a pleasant change, though, because yeah. if you would have asked me the same thing five years ago. Oh yeah. Five years ago, it was everybody I you know I talked to some guy and oh yeah, I just left Microsoft. Oh yeah, I just people were right. leaving all over the place. You know, and it. Alan Cooper said this on his interview uh, way back last year. It, he said that, you know, with .NET, it seems almost as if Microsoft took all the stupid people and fired them, and they brought in a bunch of smart people. I mean, that's typical Alan Cooper to make it yep. black and white like that, but but it's kind of funny. I mean, they're, they've really... Uh, the biggest criticism that I heard from Microsoft from the Unix camp back in the days, the, the late 90s, let's say, was that, you know, they don't listen. They don't listen to and they don't learn from the experiences that and the and the, the the experiences of other platforms and, and other developers on other platforms, especially Unix. They haven't learned from the mistakes that Unix has made and learned from and then adjusted for. So you see... You saw problems in NT4 and in 2000, Windows 2000, that had already come up and been addressed in previous versions of Unix, blah, blah, blah. So, um, ne- you know, and that's totally, they've done a complete 180 on that. At least in the context of .NET. Absolutely. I mean, you can definitely see that they've pulled from a lot of different platforms. And the server, Java, too. Pascal, et cetera. The server, too. I mean, Windows Server 2003 is more like a kernel server that you can add features to than than a big application that you have to disable things. Uh, you know, it's 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 more of uh, it's more of that. You know, it's more configurable with XML files and more command line tools and things like so. And they really they really have done that. They've hired a lot of smart people and they've yep. learned from all these technologies. On well, the challenge is that you know that team started out relatively small, and that's pretty easy to do when you've got a small team. But right. as that grows and pervades the company, can they uh, you know can they keep that up? Yeah going to be their big challenge over the next few years. Well, now that they have a stable framework on which to build, I think uh, they've got a great shot at it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to see what's going to happen in Whidbey. I mean, I've seen a lot of this stuff, but a lot of exciting stuff coming out of there. Yeah. So what's next for you? Um, you speaking anywhere soon? Uh, writing a book? What are you doing these days? Not doing any speaking as of late, or excuse me, any writing as of late. Uh, I'm going to be doing some speaking. I'm going to be at uh, ASP Live in uh, San Francisco come March. All right. Tony. Great. Co-located with the mobile DevCon down there, so that's yep. going to be pretty exciting. I've been doing more and more mobile stuff, so I can't wait to see what those guys are doing. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I wish you continued success in uh, in this project and all future projects. And, you know, it would be really cool to have you on every once in a while uh, for people to call in with perplexing questions that, uh, you know, that uh, need to be answered. And have no, that'd you. be a blast. It'd be kind of like the old Midnight Madness stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And that was a lot of fun. And yeah. and I remember in particular, and you know, I might sound like I'm gushing here, but you always seem to have the right answers. So, well, we'll uh, see how it happens, I guess, when we put me on on the spot in front of a bunch of live folks calling <laughs> in. It'll be a blast, though. Yeah. All right, Chris, man. Thanks a lot. And uh, let keep us updated on the progress of, of this great project. Will do. Nice talking with you, Carl. You too. All right. I'll see you later. Talk to you later, Carl. Bye-bye. Bye.
So if you've got a report writer and you're not satisfied with it or you're still looking for reporting solutions, you got to check out actorreports.net. And I'm not just reading copy here to you folks. I'm talking from experience. I, I also happen to know that many of the regional directors and MVPs swear by ActiveReports.net. People who come into my class, my VB.net masterclass, when I ask, who, you know, what are you using for reporting? More hands go up for ActiveReports.net than uh, any other reporting engine. So don't take my word for it. Uh, see for yourself. Go to www.datadynamics.com and uh, look for activereports.net. It really does rock. And you can download an evaluation version and get a report up and running really, really quickly. They've got a great walkthrough. And, you know, you don't have to uh, configure up lots of crazy report servers. It's not a, it's not a replacement for Crystal Enterprise. It's not that kind of thing. Uh, it's much, much more simple, much more clean. You get PDF, you get HTML. You get it all. Check it out at www.datadynamics.com. Let's get back to our show now, .NET Success Stories Part 2, right here on .NET Rocks. Hey, don't you go away. My second guest uh, today is Jesse Ezel, uh, the co-founder of ActiveHead, a .NET consulting company in Joplin, Missouri. He's been working with the .NET framework since the early betas. He's an active member of the .NET community and spends the majority of his time designing and coding .NET software solutions. How are you, Jesse? Doing great. How are you doing? Doing fine. We uh, we first met on the in the blog sphere, I think. Yeah, we did. We've uh, exchanged some comments. Um, I saw some comments about you, you. You were an early listener of the show. Yeah, I've been listening whew, since since not quite since the first uh, couple weeks, but I would say since the first months, definitely. Yeah, and we've enjoyed your comments and yeah, um, and such definitely uh, vocal about uh, my feelings <laughs> on the show. It's a great yeah. show. Um, I love it. Cool. Well, uh, um, we're going to put a link up to your blog, by the way, because oh, it's a good blog in its own right. But, uh, of course, this is a show about success stories in .NET, and uh, we put out some feelers to people who wanted to tell some stories, and you piped right up and said, yeah, I've got a great success story. So uh, I, I guess we're going to talk about your PowerPoint to Flash conversion application. Uh, that really caught my eye and my attention. I, li- I like Flash. Uh, Flash is very cool, and of course, I, I don't program in Flash MX or anything like that. But uh, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like I have to do someday. You know, so tell me about the application. So basically, uh, let me give you a little background. I started working with the Flash file format itself quite a long time ago. It was one of the uh, kind of original things that got me going in consulting, and it was all C++-based work. And so this was a while before we had the .NET framework out. 
Okay. And what I put together was a library called Swift Source, which allowed developers to create Flash content without using um, Macromedia Flash. And the idea there mm. is that you can't really script Flash and have it create, you know, like custom animations and transitions uh, without uh, using ActionScript. And ActionScript has some real big limitations. And so what we developed mm. was kind of like a a file format library that allowed developers to write to Swift. And this was uh, before .NET? Yeah, this was quite a few years before .NET, maybe two or three years before. Okay, um, was that a public product or just something you um, did? It was an open source software product. Huh. Um, it was one of those things where Macromedia had released their own uh, file format SDK, and I had been working with that just to see, you know, this is cool. You could really develop some nice, some sweet Flash applications if you weren't confined to the limitations that uh, kind of Flash imposes on you, because especially the early versions of Flash were really designed for uh, designers, not developers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there were a lot of products that came out around that time, like Swish, which kind of took text effects and stuff to the next level with Flash. Uh, This was all a result of Macromedia releasing the file format documentation along with their own uh, file format SDK. And mm-hmm. there were some problems around their SDK dealing with licensing issues. No one really knew like what the boundaries were, where you could use it without kind of getting stuck or screwed over in the end. They want, so, it sounded like they wanted to keep their options open, huh? Yeah, so <laughs> people wanted to keep their options open as well as Macromedia's SDK wasn't really written by Macromedia. Hmm. It was written by some other entity. And whoever did it just did a horrible job, and so there were tons of bugs. And if you ever used it, you spent more time debugging your code to fix their bugs than you spent debugging your code to fix your own bugs. Hey, you know, what a coincidence. I happen to have the developer of that product on the line right now. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And so what ended up happening was um, we, we sat down, and I just started coding a a library based off of their file format specifications that actually worked. And originally it was just a kind of a a side project, something fun to do. But what ended up happening is is everyone apparently had the same issues I was having, and we just had, you know, tens of thousands of downloads just in a matter of months. Wow. And so it, it was really big, really booming, and everyone was kind of looking for these applications to make that were like these applications that could generate Flash but weren't, weren't part of the Flash player. And probably the number one question I always received was, how can I take a PowerPoint file and uh, put that up on my website? How can I convert that to Flash? Right. And so what ended up happening is a few companies were either watching the message boards or thought of the idea themselves and said, you know what, this would really be a great application because the built-in, you know, Flash, convert it, and put it in HTML stuff just, I mean, it doesn't work, and sometimes it, like, locks up your browser, and the quality is just real poor. Hmm. And so um, uh, a couple companies contacted us a while back about, you know, we have some plans to go through with this, and none of them really caught our eye. They were like, yeah, you can do it, and some of them just didn't want to pay enough money to do it, and some of them just didn't have a good plan, so we didn't go with them. Uh, huh. But then finally, um, Articulate came along, and they really had a, a good vision for uh, creating these uh, 
they kind of extend PowerPoint. And so you're not just putting a static presentation out there. You're able to do things like add narration and timings and add quizzes and objects to your PowerPoint to really sweet. make it a rich environment for uh, training on the web. Wow, sweet. And so their idea was that uh, they would enable business users to create full uh, knowledge portals based off of these PowerPoint documents. And so you see a lot of cool stuff happening where you have like a sales team and that sales team wants to train all their sales reps. And so their sales manager can create some presentation, add some narration, maybe some links, some documents, and an assessment at the end. And then they can send it out to their employees, say, go visit our portal, you know, watch X presentations, and then get, you know, feedback and tracking and reporting based off, okay, well, who actually watched the presentation and how did so they it's do a, on the So it's a pretty significant, like so it's a pretty significant uh, application. I mean, pretty, pretty involved, it sounds like. Very feature-rich. Now, this was an application that was a, a Windows app or a web app or what? Or what uh, was it? It's really a hybrid. So we have um, on the client side a uh, a Visual Basic application that extends PowerPoint, um, and that that handles all of the PowerPoint-specific side of the conversion. And that's a and, VB Net, right? No, that is just that's plain old VB. Okay. And, the reason there, of course, is because the uh, the redistributable for .NET is so large that when they're doing a lot of electronic distribution, they don't want people to have to download a 30 megabyte demo. They'd rather keep it small at five. Okay, megs. so the target is still the public at large. Yeah, in so other words. they want they want to be ha- be able to have a widest install base as possible. And okay. so basically, the idea is anyone who has PowerPoint above, I believe it's 97, can can run the application without any uh, additional uh, okay. large downloads. And so we have a, a Visual Basic add-in that handles um, all the PowerPoint stuff. And then we have a COM component which handles the, uh, the details of the Flash file format and basically has calls like add a sprite or add a graphic, animate this sprite. Um, okay. Real Flash-specific stuff. And that's all, like, at the client? Yeah, and that's on the client end. And okay. then on the back end, we have a ASP.NET portal, which utilizes WSI and web services to communicate with that client for uploading documents. WSI being the web service extensions? Yeah. And that communicates with the VB6 app? Uh-huh. So you you had to code the WSI extensions for VB6, or did you use a toolkit? Um, yeah, we used we used one of the SOAP toolkits, and there were there were some issues. I think it took us a couple weeks to actually get uh, WSI up and running on top of VB6. There, I wow. mean, it, it's real easy with .NET since .NET to .NET everything's built in. Right. But the the SOAP toolkit didn't really have. A lot of the support for things like WS Security, which well, we yeah. were using, and wow. so it was real easy to get using the SOAP toolkit. It was real easy to get the basic calls up and running, but adding authentication took a couple steps. Yeah, I bet. And there, there were also some other issues, like um, you know, session type issues with that web service, because a lot of our back end um, stores the. Uh, uh, a lot of tracking and logging information inside the session, so we had to allow session with our web services hmm. as well. 
And and we were talking before the show that uh, this was originally an ASP application, was it? And now you're, yeah. you're doing a port? Originally, the portal was written in ASP, um, but going forward, it just it didn't make too much sense um, because when, you, when you're coding in ASP, you've got to do a lot of things like um, weird includes, and the application was kind of getting mangled, and there wasn't a real good separation between business logic and presentation and data access. It was just like everything was thrown in there, and there wasn't a good way to communicate with the VB app. Um, right. It, I mean, it all worked, um, maybe not as fast as we would have liked, hey, but I've it been did there, get man. the job done. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that's how all ASP applications are, yeah, unless yeah. you're going to be doing like some heavy-duty COM work in the back end, which is just as bad. Yeah. So when we looked at it and said, you know, how can we enable ourselves to uh, rapidly develop a the portal and be able to add new features as quickly as possible um, and kind of just allow a platform that would eventually be extensible um, so that other developers could plug into it? And the obvious solution was, you know, port it to .NET and yeah. uh, go from there. Now, now you ported it to .NET. Did you start over, or did you use some of the existing stuff? What, what was the migration process like? Yeah, the, the original idea was that we would take, uh, we would split out their existing logic from the presentation layer and, like, isolate that into DLLs and create our .NET app. Um, when we got into it, after about two weeks, it quickly became apparent that, you know, that's not going to work. It was, it was just so mangled that taking all that out was going to be just as fast as rewriting it. Yeah. And we really had some time constraints too. We wanted, uh, we had a scheduled release date for the next version and we knew that um, if we had to rewrite the entire data access layer, there was just no way we could hit this date. Right. Um, so one of the decisions we made was actually to use a object relational mapper to um, kind of take care of that data access layer for us. So what in, what exactly did that do? Did that was the data access layer in a in a DLL? Um, well, what happens is we're using the uh, entity pro, entity broker project or, okay. from Sona Consulting, and basically it works a lot like what Microsoft is doing with object spaces in the uh, next version of the framework. Hmm. And so you can design uh, a bunch of classes and mark them up with attributes and say, you know, here's the ID of the class, here's the type of this column. Mm-hmm. And then by adding these, uh, this metadata to your classes, it can go and automatically generate the SQL commands to uh, retrieve and um, to delete, to do just about anything you would be doing with your data access. Okay. Now, it does have some limitations, like if you're going to be doing lots of reporting, we end right. up hand-coding a lot of that just because it's hard to get the performance you need as well as a lot of times you want to return a normalized result set where you have like just 10 columns that might have come from uh, five different tables. Sure. Yeah. So the how many developers worked on the uh, well how many developers worked on the original and then the migration and and how long you know uh, how long is it taking and all that Give me some. on the on the original we had a group of guys from Wiretree working on the ASP side okay I I coded the COM module that handled handled that uh, flash piece and then there was one of the MVPs for Office. 
handled the PowerPoint uh, add-in application. An so, all-star cast, as it yeah, were. Yeah, so it took us probably um, maybe maybe eight months, a year, to get the original version all specked out, up and running. The ASP version. And how long did the conversion take? Um, we had a prototype up and running within probably about a month or two that had our basic features and then to fully flesh everything out, get all the reports we needed and, um, you know, fully debug and test. It was probably about six months, maybe a little more, but I'd say six. And it was the same group of guys? Yeah, it was the same group of guys except that Wiretree moved from uh, doing all of the ASP side of the application to focusing on only the interface of the ASP application and the interface of our Flash-based player. And I mm. took over the uh, the backend and the .NET coding on the portal. So how many people from Wiretree? Uh, I believe it was uh, two. And they're a consulting company, right? Yeah, they're, they're a great, um, probably one of the best design uh like web design from okay. that I know of. And we're, so we're basically talking to a small... notch stuff, always winning awards for it. So we're basically talking a small handful of people here. Yeah. And um, and the and it took you about a month to, to do a port to the first rev, at least of the ASP.NET version. Yeah. Um, the guys who... Uh, how, how did the people who did the .NET conversion learn .NET? Was it all just by rote, by, by reading books, or did they get any training, or... Um, well, I had been working with the .NET framework since the betas. Right. So when we started porting it earlier this year, I had already had uh, a ton of experience just consulting as well as working on our own product. So you learned it just by reading the help files and books and things? Yeah, you know, when when ASP.NET was first coming out and it wasn't even ASP.NET, it was like ASP+. ASP+, Plus, Plus. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we, I mean, we were all kind of interested in... As soon as we saw a preview of some of the things you could do, it was like, oh, my goodness, you can just drop a calendar on a page yeah. and code it? That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> That's an impressive thing to show people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was the calendar control that did it for us. I mean, even though we never even used the calendar control because you always want, like, a date picker, it was still yeah. It was so much cooler than ASP. Yeah, that that's an impressive thing, and especially if you've done gone lived through the pain of uh, doing that manually. So, what what kind of performance increases do you? Well, you know, and I'm going to ask you that within the framework of the hardware too. Tell me what what hardware the ASP ran on, and and what hardware it, it runs on today. Uh, well, we actually upgraded our servers and beefed them up because we wanted to handle a much larger load, and so the the ASP version was. Um, was running with kind of a small group of clients. And when we made the .NET port, what we did is separated from one server running uh, IIS and SQL Server to a massive, uh, like, four-processor box running the web server and then another big box running the SQL Server. Okay. Um, So performance... It wasn't like we did that because we needed all this extra performance as much as we needed a lot of extra capacity. Headroom. Yeah, I think one. Of, it's hard to compare performance as well because the uh, the second application was so much richer than the first application. Yeah. Like the first application didn't really have uh, what we call workspaces, which are 
similar to what you'd have in SharePoint, where you can go in and add, you know, like a, a piece of text on a page or some hmm. news items on a page. Well, let's um, talk. Let's talk about the success part of the success story. Who's using this uh, application? Um, they have uh, a large amount of customers using their application. Everyone from Liz Claiborne, Dell, Johnson and Johnson, FedEx, McGraw Hill. Um, they, I mean, the list goes on. That's an impressive list of clients. The company is called Articulate, uh, the top-notch product. Uh, real similar to uh, Macromedia has a product called Breeze they acquired from uh, Presidia. Yeah. Um, but their their version is um, not anywhere as slick as ours. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And is this an application that you could buy and, and run on your own servers, or is it something that you subscribe to? Yeah, there's actually a few different additions that they offer. They offer a standalone conversion application that doesn't hook into the portal and lets you do stuff if you wanted to have some presentations, say, available on your own site. Yeah. Um, and you could use that for things like uh, financial reports or executive briefings. Um, hmm. And then they also offer a hosted version of the portal and a product version of the portal that you can buy and install on your own servers. Huh, cool. And the, they actually have a very large number of users from the Veterans Administration running the uh, the portal uh, in a standalone. Hmm. I think it was something like 10,000 users. So Wow. That's that's great, man. What a, what a story. So you, you've done some other things that uh, you're proud of in .NET. Obviously, uh, we were talking about a, a, a content management system that uh, you have done or are working on. Or Yeah, um, we're actually about to release our first uh, major product for our company, and it is a .NET-based content management server. Okay. Tell me about that. Um, well, basically, the idea is um, for someone not familiar with content management, you know, Kind of traditionally, if you look back um, 10 years ago, people would go to web designers and developers and say, hey, I need a website. Can you design me a website? And in yeah. the beginning, it was like people would design this static website. <laughs> now change it for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. And now, now, hey, I want to change this graphic or I want to change this text. And so they call their company. And they'd say, you know, we want to we want to change this, and the company would go up, change it, upload it to the FTP. Right. And it didn't take too long for that process to get real old. Yep. I mean, because one, it's just it's just not fun to be updating the site. So the company isn't really going to be excited about going and changing a piece of text, no matter <laughs> how much they're getting paid to do it. I hear you. And so it it kind of tends to fall in the background, and it's like, well, we're working on this other project. We'll do it when we have time. No, also, especially since it's one of those things that takes 30 seconds, it's easy right. to keep pushing it off and keep pushing it off. And developers kind of feel insulted when somebody calls them and says, hey, can you change the phone number on the website? It's uh, like, it's you like know, hey, you do it yourself. You yeah, know? exactly. I write the uh, code. You you change the content. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you, you saw a lot of products coming out like front page, which were allowing people to kind of be more involved with the process and edit the pages themselves. But... Um, what, the problem with these products was that you were generating HTML content. Right. And so if you really wanted something that was dynamic, pulling from a database or searchable, you needed these other pieces to plug in. Right. And they're, they're not cheap to develop. I mean, if you go out to uh, 
a good consulting company, it might cost you, you know, 125 bucks per hour just to put a form on your site. So suffice to say, the content management system is the administrator's section where they get to define the content, not the markup, but the content. Maybe sometimes the markup, but without yeah, well, having there's, there's to write any two code. Pieces because you're going to have like templates that define, you know, this is how this is how I want my site to look. Right. But there's a clear separation between that and the content on your site, because regardless of whether the look of your site changes, the content will probably remain relatively the same. You know, yeah. it will grow, but you're not just going to say, hey, we're going to rewrite all our content today. Yeah, yeah. And so um, what, what, what we decided to do and what a lot of companies have been doing is moving over to kind of a system to manage your content and uh, just give you easier access so that when you do decide to extend your site or when you decide to uh, add some type of personalization, you uh, you don't have to just code a ton on the back end. Now, what about Microsoft's content management server? How does, how does that fare to what you guys are doing? Yeah, Microsoft's content management server is actually pretty similar to what we're doing, except that we have... Um, Real different focuses. So Microsoft's content management server allows you to get a site up and running, but at least from our standpoint, it takes a lot of work still to do, and their pricing isn't exactly um, easy on your wallet. Okay. And so if, if you're a real large company, it might not be too bad for you because you're going to have some IT staff there, and you're going to have uh, you know the bucks to go out and pay. Um, How much are we talking, by the way? For Microsoft's. for Microsoft's content management server, yeah, uh, I think their their entry level edition starts at like seven thousand dollars for Ooh. like fifteen users. Oh my goodness! And but it's like it's kind of like a stripped a stripped down version. So if you want to get like the real version, you're going to pay quite a bit more, and um, then you also have, of course, additional licensing costs depending on the number of administrative users you have. Okay, so so what is yours cost? I mean, why not uh, just lay it out? Going to, we're looking at right now around $4,000 for the uh, introductory price, which is the, you know, the full full-fledged version. And so, so it's, it's not still... you don't have a a stripped down version. You start out with like a a 5 or 10 user license. It's still not walking around price. money, but uh, you know, it's cheaper, but it's still not walking around money. Yeah, it, it's it's still not cheap because um, th- this isn't intended to be for um, you know a, a five page website. Chances are they don't really need uh, a content management solution. Right. We have been we have been throwing around ideas to kind of meet those needs because even though it might be a five page site, it, it would be nice for them to be able to update their site. And so we have been tossing around. Um, kind of lower pricing, like our version of an introductory version, which would be for a very small business. Cool. Not, uh, you know, a small business by some is considered to be 100 people. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, getting back to your other application just briefly, uh, if you had to pick the most interesting problem that you came up with the coolest solution for uh, in that project, what would it be? I would have to say that... Uh, the most interesting piece is the uh, just the whole conversion process, and I think that's really what drives the application. Okay. Because uh, on the front end, when you're working with those office object models, they're just kind of convoluted, and they weren't really intended to allow you to get out all the content. 
Mm-hmm. And so you really you really need someone who is just an ultimate expert in the office object models to do this type of thing. Yeah. And like there's certain places where let's say you want to pull an image out of PowerPoint, you can't just call image.save and write it to a file. You have to cut it into the clipboard and then like paste it into another slide and then save that slide out as a uh, like a ping or a JPEG. Not quite as well designed as the .NET framework. No, not anywhere near as close. I mean, there's just all these hoops you have to jump through, and sometimes things don't return the right values. Sometimes they return erratic values, and it's just navigating through it all can be amazingly complex. Have you seen the um, Camtasia product that uh, will save their uh, desktop video recorder files to Flash? Yes, I have, and we're actually working on a similar project um, for for the same company to allow you to, you know, insert a demo into your application. That's cool. Yeah, I use that uh, product to do some how-to videos, and I love it. No, it works great. Yeah, I mean, especially you get a real small file size. It's almost like uh, using like a terminal server and saving that out, or placeware or something. Yeah, yeah, and and it, you can't tell you're looking at a video. Well, uh, what's uh, what's next for you guys? What uh, what's uh, on the horizon? Yeah, going forward, I think our main focus is this uh, content management product, just getting it out the door, and we're fixing to go into beta with it, and so we'll get a lot of community feedback. Initial responses so far have been real great; everyone loves it. Cool. Um, so, um, I and think if that's somebody our wants main m- thrust, as well as we have some real cool uh, consulting projects in the works. So, um, if somebody wants to get involved. About. If somebody wants to get involved in the beta of your content management system, they should uh, hit hit up your blog or, or contact yeah, you. Or? Um, they can find uh, tons of uh, little posts over at the blog. I talk about the content management server and some of the stuff we're doing every once in a while, as well as um, sending me an email, jesse at activehead.com. I'd be okay. glad to answer any questions. Cool. Well, it's been uh, it's been a pleasurable uh, uh, period of time here talking with you, and, and thanks for stopping by and sharing that story. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. All right, man. Keep rocking. All right. We'll see you. See ya. Bye. Bye.